Well, hey, I'm super excited to be back uh, tonight to continue this series uh, that we've been in. Um, tonight, we're going to kind of talk about identity a little bit and what that looks like. And so I feel like it's only right to ask this question to kind of get the gauge of the room to see who I'm talking about. Uh, so raise your hand if you are a cat person. Like you like cats way more than you like dogs. Ooh, okay, okay. Where my, where, so where are all my dog people at? Oh, wow. <laughs> a clear dominance. I love it. I love it. Well, I'll be talking to you guys tonight. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, but I actually, we, we may need some pet sitters. So now I, now I know who, who to talk to first. Well, perfect. But so I, I do want to tell a little story about uh, this new dog that me and Devin just got. Um, and so he's a 12-week-old golden retriever, and he's the best. Like, for all my dog people, you already know that puppies are the cutest things that this earth has, right? My cat people might feel differently, but you'll be persuaded. Uh, puppies are the best thing ever. Now, has anybody ever had a puppy that's been running around your home? You might kind of hear what I'm saying with hesitation because you also know all the crazy things that having a puppy in your house entails, right? Like, they bite all the time, like every time you try to touch them. Uh, they whine all through the night. Uh, they chew everything they get a hold of. And they have like this really strong conviction that they can just pee wherever they want to. And it's just okay. Like, it's crazy. Like, yes, on one hand, they're the cutest things in the world, but on a much more real note, they're, they're psychos. They really are. Um, but Devin and I decided, oh, about a month ago, that we were brave or really dumb enough uh, to go and tackle getting a puppy. And so we did. Uh, we got a, a little golden retriever named Tucker, um, and we love him. We, we absolutely love him. I um, mean, so we had him for these first couple of days, and, like, initially we were thinking, we were talking, and we were just like, this guy's amazing. Like, he wasn't biting us a ton. He slept through the night a couple times. And he really didn't have many accidents for, like, a new puppy. And so we were just kind of like, okay, did we get the best puppy, like, that's ever been on this earth? Like, this is crazy. Uh, but, you know, as he got comfortable to our home and comfortable in his environment, things got much, much, much worse. I mean, he started biting, and, like, the biting was the worst part. I mean, even now, a month later, like, you can't touch the thing if, um, um, unless, unless you want to get bitten, like, eight times. It's crazy. He has these, like, razor-sharp teeth that'll just, like, latch on. It's horrible. And so we went from thinking, wow, this is the best dog ever, to, okay, we have the world's worst dog sometimes. <laughs> um, and it's crazy. But a lot of times, you know, I think, okay, this biting is just, he's a bad dog, right? Like, I get so angry at him and, you know, think like that, but I think he's bad. But when I kind of step back and, and think of this, you know, it, I kind of came to a realization. I was like, yes, Tucker, he bites a lot, but his biting doesn't necessarily make him bad, right? Like, he's a puppy. Puppies bite. That's just kind of a thing that they go through. And so this kind of made me think that, his identity of being a puppy often was revealing what he was doing, right? Like, he wasn't biting because he's bad. He's biting just because he's a puppy. Like, one day, he's going to grow older, kind of get out of this teething phase, learn how to become a model citizen like I'm teaching him, and the biting will stop. But until then, because he's a puppy, he bites. And it made me think who we are often determines what we do 
or what we produce. Jesus taught something like this in his Sermon on the Mount. You know, he taught that every healthy tree bears good fruit and every diseased tree bears bad fruit. He's saying that who you are is what you will produce. And this is how I want to transition into tonight's message. And so last week, if you remember, Brandon walked us through this like really cool passage that teaches who our identity in God is. And if you don't remember, uh, which may be very likely, um, I'll recap kind of the two verses I had in mind. It's, it's uh, verses 9 through 10 in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes this. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He says that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Like, isn't that passage so cool? Like the adjectives alone that Peter uses are just kind of unbelievable to me. I mean, he says that we are chosen, we are royal, we are holy. Like these are the words that God calls the Christian. And I know right now we live in a world today that offers us so many different identities. I mean, think for just a moment of some of the things that the world tries to define us as. Right, we could be defined as our grades in school, how good of a musician or athlete we are, how obedient we are to our parents, how many followers or views we get on our social media. Like there's so many things that the world tries to stamp an identity upon us. And when we listen to our identity the world gives us, we all often hear things back like, we're not good enough, or we're not strong or pretty enough, we're not smart enough, or really we're not fill in the blank enough, right? But when we read and when we stare into the Bible, like Brandon uh, told us a couple weeks ago, we find that God defines us by things as chosen, royal, and holy. That without him, we're not a people, but because of his great and rich mercy, we are people of God. And so as we transition to tonight's passage, uh, we'll learn that this glorious identity that God gives us comes with a responsibility to live in that identity. And so the main point that I have for you tonight is this. It's as people of God, we are to live in exile on earth in a way that honors and glorifies God. As people of God, we're to live as exiles on earth in a way that honors and glorifies God. And so the passage we'll be in is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. And in it, Peter writes this. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, 
but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So in this passage, Peter is going to give us three ways that we are to live based on our identity that God has given. And these three ways are going to be these responsibilities that we have to live. And so if three points is, is a little too much for you to remember, I've, I've summed it down to two words. Those are my main points tonight. The first one is refrain, and the second one is to respect. Refrain and respect. Peter says that because we are people of God, we must refrain and we must respect. And so as people of God were to refrain, my first point, or abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war on our soul. That's what Peter begins with. And Peter is teaching us here that our identity in God means that we should refrain or not allow ourselves to act according to our flesh. That there are certain things Christians just shouldn't be doing. Like some actions contradict the Christian faith. Let me, let me give you an example. So imagine you're sitting at home watching the news, okay? And there's a reporter on screen right in front of a bank that's just been robbed. And all of a sudden, this guy wearing a ski mask and a bag full of money comes up, and he goes, hey, I robbed that bank in Jesus' name. Like, I did it because I'm a Christian. That's why I stole this money. Or imagine you're, you're taking a test in class, and the person kind of sitting next to you keeps kind of like peeking over you and then writing their answers down and then peeking over and writing the, writing the answer you put. And you finally catch them, and you're like, dude, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, it's okay. Like, I'm a Christian, so I'm cheating. Like, no, there's certain things that Christians just don't be, like, that they shouldn't be doing. And Peter calls them passions of the flesh. And we know what these are because they wage war with our soul. In other words, we kind of have this little voice inside of us that says, hey, you probably shouldn't be doing that. I'm sure we've all heard that voice before. Paul speaks of this same topic in the book of Romans in chapter 8. He says that for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit. Who we are often determines what we do. Are you of the flesh? Are you without Jesus? Then you must be living in the passions of your flesh. But are you of Christ in the spirit? Then both Paul and Peter teach you ought to live like it. And Paul continues in Romans 8 saying, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and that those in the flesh cannot please God. I know this may come to a surprise to you, but no, robbing a bank does not please God. I don't recommend. These passions of the flesh, as Peter describes them, are opposite of God. And so two weeks ago, if you remember, I mentioned the holiness of God and that and for, in order for us to even see him, we must ourselves be holy. And so therefore, if we're chasing and living in the passions of our sin, we are not living in the identity that God has given us as people of God. 
Peter's teaching us here that in order to live as true people of God, we must refrain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul. And so the first word we must follow as people of God is refrain. But the second is respect. We must respect those in authority. And so specifically, uh, Peter's going to give us two figures of authority that he wants to respect in this passage. And the first one is the government. So in verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by them to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Pastor Lane spoke on this verse a couple weeks ago, and I want to quote something that he talks. I think it's super key for us. He said that to respect government leaders, we in return are respecting God's placement and designation of them for his greater purpose. So in other words, to respect the government, we are really respecting God. And that's why it's so crucial for us here. And now I understand that, and especially a time like this, uh, hearing a command like this might kind of rub us the wrong way. And although some of us may feel that we may be more opposed to the government than in submission and respect to them, uh, that's what Peter has called us to here. And so maybe you've said or or heard your parents say that the government is, you know, stripping away our rights to wear a mask or that we just shouldn't be wearing a mask. And trust me, I, there are a few people out there that that don't like wearing a mask more than me. So I work outside all day uh, in Springfield where the mask coordination, you know, is a thing. Um, However, my work went upon themselves to say that we have to wear one even outside. And so for all like summer long, I was standing outside wearing a face covering on my face. And if you can kind of see where that is leading, it's this horrible, horrible tan line that I would not wish on any of you guys. I mean, it's just like a line straight across my face. And so I get it. It's tough. But I can guarantee you that the people Peter is talking to when he's writing this book, they are feeling even more discomfort and more even anger at this command that Peter's telling them. So remember that the Christians who this letter is written to are exiles, right? That they've been dispersed into all these different foreign lands. And so in Peter's time, the nation of Rome would literally just label you a criminal if you said, I'm a Christian. You know, and the offense of saying that you're a Christian was death. There was a Roman historian at that time. His name is Tacitus. It's a cool name. He wrote about this time period, and he he documented that not only were Christians experiencing death, they were being, they were like objects of amusement, he said. That Christians were being torn apart by dogs. They were crucified. They were lit on fire sometimes. Yet Peter's telling us, be subject to them, that we need to respect those in government. And so a Christian submission to the government doesn't mean that you lay down your life for them. Remember, we obey God first and man second. However, this does not mean that we're to disrespect and dishonor those whom God has put in office. That yes, we're, we're to stand our ground when it comes to protecting the word of God while also honoring and showing respect to our respect is due. 
our citizenship in America is a reflection of our citizenship in heaven. And so by respecting government, we are respecting God. So yes, the mask is uncomfortable. It may even cause some horrible tan lines. But if by faithfully wearing one, I can respect our government authorities, I will wear one. And so the second group or figure that, that Peter tells us to respect here is masters. He, he uses this ser, uh, servants and masters. So in verse 18, he writes this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so Peter's using this term of servants and masters here, but a lot of people translate this to like employee and employer. Or since my parents always used to tell me that your job is to do well in school, I'm gonna extend this to say students and teachers as well. And so therefore the third and the final area we're to live as people of God is by respecting our bosses, and our teachers. Oof. And if Peter could get even worse than this, he's saying not only the good ones, not only the ones that you like, like the ones you're like, yes, I have this teacher like right now. No, it's the ones that you don't like. Like I'm sure all of us here have had a teacher or a boss that we're just like, Ugh, I have to go to third class right now. You know, like maybe they picked favorites or maybe they just aren't a good teacher and don't teach the material very well, or maybe they just had super hard tests, maybe they just gave out too much homework and you didn't agree with that. Or what about a boss you didn't like? I'm sure we've been there as well, but Peter says that our respect should extend to them even more so. And so to help explain why respecting our bosses and our teachers, Peter gives us this part confusing, part kind of like really cool uh, explanation. He asks, what good, if, what good is it if you suffer for doing bad? Right, like if you get in trouble at school because you were the one cheating on that test earlier, then like, of course you're going to get in trouble. That's not gracious in the sight of God. But what is gracious is the one who pursues goodness and respect, even though they aren't their teacher's favorite. Or the one who respects the boss who doesn't seem to notice or care about them. I want you to know that your boss or your teacher, they might overlook you, especially in a time like this, but the Lord does not. He does not. And as people of God, we are to live in exile on earth in a way that honors and glorifies God by refraining and respecting. Refrain from the passions that war against us and respect those whom are in authority. And so Peter has taken us through how our identity as chosen people of God determines how we should live in the rest of our life here in exile on earth. And so I want to conclude tonight by looking back at verse 12. So I'll remind you what verse 12 says. It says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter in this verse is reinforcing this idea of doing good while we're in exile. So I want to pose a question to you guys to close. Will the way you live in exile on earth cause others to worship God?
Will the way you live in exile on earth cause others to worship God? Peter teaches us that the way we live as people of God can have this transformational impact on unbelievers around us. Like when those who don't know Jesus look at our lives and they see us refraining from these worldly passions, right? They see us not doing certain things. And they see us respecting people of authority regardless of who they are. They see that and they're baffled. Yet they're pointed to God. And as a matter of fact, in any and every situation or circumstance or interaction with somebody that you have, you have an opportunity to either point them to the Lord or away. Never, ever underestimate the power of doing good in the face of evil. One of my best friends is CJ. So many of you guys may know him. He uh, comes to LifePoint, used to intern too. Um, But he's been my best friend for about three years now. And I met him, when I did, we were both living in the same fraternity house at Missouri State. Right, and at the time, there were two like huge differences between us. CJ was following the Lord and I was not. And in fact, he was the only one in this house full of like 30 guys who was faithfully following the Lord. And so for a whole semester, I got to live right across the hall from CJ. And while I was off living in the passions of my flesh, doing whatever I wanted, I got to see CJ almost every single day, living in the midst of this crazy fraternity as a true person of God, as one who refrained from the things everybody else was doing, yet respecting those who we didn't respect. And it baffled me. I was so confused because he was also the most joyous person there. I was like, this does not make sense. I felt uncomfortable around him. Like every time he'd have a conversation with me, I'd walk away being like, oh, he just, he thinks he's better than me. Uh, and, and I just always uh, would, would get in my head about that. And I spoke, I gossiped about him when he, when he wasn't around, you know, thinking that he does think he's better than everybody because he doesn't do these things and all that. And I really spoke against him as an evildoer is what Peter's, Peter told us. Yet CJ persisted in doing good in the midst of evil. He started Bible studies. He preached the gospel to guys who would listen. And he ended up inviting us to this huge conference uh, at the end of the semester that basically was all about what it's like to have a relationship with God. And it was at that conference that I very reluctantly went to. It was at that conference that I glorified God because of his visitation. The repeated good deeds of CJ all semester long exposed me to the gospel. It introduced me to Jesus, and it led to the visitation of the Holy Spirit and the salvation of my soul. Never, ever underestimate the power of doing good in the face of evil, because you have no clue who's watching or what it would do to those around you. And so I press you, student life, will the way that you live your life here in exile cause others to worship God like CJ's did mine? As people of God, we are called to live in exile on earth in a way that honors and glorifies God. So would you pray with me? Father, I thank you. Uh, for this glorious and wonderful identity that you've given uh, your children. 
Not, Lord, that this identity isn't something that we earn by ourselves or that we work for, but, Lord, that you graciously give because of your mercy. That, Lord, in, in, in each one of our lives, we are at one point not a people. But, Lord, because you sent your son Jesus to bear our sins and to take it to the cross and to pay our debt before God, we are able to live as your children, as people of God. And, Lord, I thank you for that glorious truth. And I pray that if there's any that haven't heard that or haven't believed it in this room tonight, that, Lord, that you would, uh, by your spirit and by your grace, would you visit them. Lord, would you open their eyes to your glory and to who that you define them as. And, Lord, I pray for the rest of us that as we continue our race here on earth in exile, away from our citizenship that is truly in heaven, that, Lord, we would take up what Peter's saying here, that, Lord, we would choose to refrain from worldly passions, and, Lord, that we would respect all those around us. Father, I thank you for these students and for everybody here tonight. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.